1: Hello, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox, and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
1: On today's show, author and translator Francesc Miraias discusses his new novel, Love in Lowercase. Then PW senior news editor Calvin Reed reports on the International Comics Festival in Angoulême.
0: But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. What do you think? Fiction, nonfiction, flip a coin.
1: Let's start with fiction. Uh, We've only got a few notable books on the list this week. We have a new number one by James Patterson. We're all surprised. Um, I could just leave it there. It's the fourth book in his NYPD red series, co-written with Marshall Karp. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I I love I love descriptions jacket copy that start with it's another <laughs> because <laughs> um, you know Patterson uh, knows what his fans want and he knows how to give it to them this is uh, it's another thriller um, as the as the promo copy says it's another glamorous night in the heart of Manhattan there's a glitzy premiere and uh, suddenly a shot rings out. That's actually literally mm, what happened. Suddenly a shot rings out, um, and, uh, you know, Bulwer-Lytton himself could not have done it better. And uh, you know, this, this is this is one for fans of this particular series, which is uh, obviously set in New York and features the hard work of Our Boys in Blue. So that's at number one, NYPD Red 4. They don't even bother giving them titles anymore. That, right, that's, right. that's literally yeah. the title, NYPD Red four like 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 it's a movie (laughs) Um, so that's also it's also the fourth book in the nypd red series in case you were wondering and uh, the nypd red is the elite task force assigned to protect the rich and famous Ah. so um, you get a lot of uh, glitz and glamour and wealth porn this is the sort of thing where every car and every necklace is lovingly described and every item of clothing is designer and if you want to to take a moment and imagine that you are living in this world of glitz and drama and and terrible crimes then this is the book for you and clearly that's something that's very popular because it sold nearly thirty thousand copies out of the gate so that's enough to put it at number one though i think for patterson those numbers are actually a little low but um nothing nothing surpassed it this week uh, down at number five, we have The Bands of Mourning, which is by Brandon Sanderson. This is the sixth book in his Industrial Revolution fantasy series. You don't tend to hear a lot about epic fantasy novels set in uh, times of big technological change. Usually you have this idea of it being a sort of pseudo-medieval, mm-hmm. pastoral setting with you know kings in castles and people fighting with swords. The Mistborn series um, is uh, at, a, at a different point in uh, the life cycle of it fantasy world they're really starting to develop industry and there's a lot of metal-based magic allomancy ferrochemy and mm. hemallergy oh wow so um the, some exciting things are happening there uh with both magic and technology and uh in this book which we say is more more steampunk than dystopian um the yeah, the novel kicks off with a wedding, um, but very quickly, less pleasant things start right. to happen, and the festivities are put on hold. Uh, we say our, in our review that open questions from earlier adventures are finally addressed, and Sanderson skillfully weaves in new opportunities for the next adventure for his dynamic duo of Wax and Wayne. That is actually their names, Waxillium <laughs> Ladrian, and his sidekick, Wayne. Uh, Die-hard fans will be delighted to finally learn more about the mysterious southern lands they've previously heard about in passing. So that's at number five on our hardcover fiction list. And moving down a little bit, something quite different at number 11 is The Swans of Fifth Avenue by Melanie Benjamin. This is a historical novel set in 1975. And uh, it's inspired by a real-life event when Truman Capote uh, published a a bunch of very personal information, a lot of dirty laundry for Mm. some Manhattan socialites, uh, published it in Esquire. And uh, the women are the the metaphorical swans of the title. And as they cope with Capote having told the world their secrets, um, they also attempt to untangle an intimacy with him that dates back to 1955. Uh, And we say in our review that uh, readers expecting the sympathetic protagonists of Benjamin's earlier books may be disappointed by the diffuse and chilly cast of characters here. Um, There's an unabashed delight in gossip and lavish lifestyles, but the novel's themes are sober. Uh, The double-edged power of telling our stories, the ways we test and punish those we love, and the psychic cost of of life lived by the mantra, appearance matters most. So that's a... Some fun historical drama there. And down at number 30, we have Coconut Cowboy by Tim Dorsey. Uh, This got a starred review from us. We really loved it. We said it's entertainingly picaresque. It's the 19th book in his Surge Storms series. Uh, And it opens with a scene that sets the comic tone for what's to follow in a a violent dispute between mascots for competing eateries. (laughs) So a man in a panda suit fighting a man in a gorilla suit uh, while a, a nearby Uh, At a nearby bank, a would-be thief learns that he's waited in the wrong line to hand in his robbery notes. So that gives you an idea of uh, what to expect here. Um, Serge is a a serial killer, which is an entertaining choice for a serious protagonist. Um, But he has a kind of soft spot for the victims of bad guys other than him. Uh, and uh, and he has very original insights as well as a wide-ranging knowledge of popular culture. So there's lots to sort of riff off of and enjoy here. Um, and we say the author's kinky Friedman-like voice perfectly suits the Engaging Stories arc. Right. So that's at number 30. Um, And finally, down at number 39, I'm very pleased to see All the Birds in the Sky by Charlie Jane Anders, a friend of mine. Um, This is her first book from Tor Books and uh, a friendship between two adolescent misfits is the catalyst for an apocalyptic reckoning in what our review calls Anders' clever and wonderfully weird novel. Uh, and it's about uh, a sort of uh, mismatched duo. Um, one of them is a is a novice witch, and the other is a preternaturally intelligent nerd. Um, and so they first meet in middle school, and then 10 years later reunite uh, in San Francisco, where the witch is quietly practicing her witchcraft. Mm-hmm. And uh, the nerd is now a tech world wunderkind, who's trying to manipulate time and space. So there's lots of magic, lots of science, um, lots of fun. And we say that Anders smoothly pivots from horror to humor to heartbreak and back again. And she keeps readers guessing as to the fates of her two protagonists and the world. And um, side characters include talking animals and a sentient computer searching for love. So um, lots of fun stuff going on here. I'm hearing a lot of buzz about this book and uh, I'm not surprised to see it on the bestseller list. It's definitely building some momentum
0: great for charlie excellent yeah it's good it's
1: terrific so what have we got non-fiction
0: we just got a couple uh my 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 highest debut is number 30 wow Um, so not a
1: lot of movement on the list
0: not at all and this is called the only game in town central banks instability and avoiding the next collapse by Mohammed el arian who's a former ceo of investment firm pimco he sets a For his well-informed, if sometimes overstretched, argument with a Larry Summers quote, the world has largely exhausted the scope for central bank improvisation as a growth strategy, we say in our review. These pages tend to deviate from his usual intellectual rigor with Oprah-like feel-good mantras. Nonetheless, we say this is a prescient warning against our current overlines on central banks and a call to action toward building a sustainable global Economy. Uh, so we gave it a good review. Uh, next, the other one I'm going to talk about is uh, number 49. It's called 1924, the year that made Hitler by Peter Ross Range. We don't have a review of this, but according to the press release before Adolf Hitler's rise to power in Germany, there was 1924. This was the year of his final transformation into a self proclaimed savior, an infallible leader who would interpret and distort Germany's historical traditions to support his vision. For the Third right, So that's at number 49. Right. And those are, um, and, they do and, nonfiction. And that's, that's
1: it. it. Yeah. And I mean, even looking at the list, the numbers are pretty much the same as they were yeah. last week. A couple things move up a couple, a couple things move down a couple, but it's pretty much the same. So we'll see what happens in yeah. the coming week.
0: Marie Kondo still decluttering number yeah. two. So uh,
1: yeah, there's uh there's, there's no stopping her. Not at all. Well, maybe she'll declutter the bestseller list and make room for some new books for us. <laughs>
0: I'm going to write to her. <laughs>
1: I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark
0: Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Next up, Frances Marias tells us what it's like to translate and be translated. We'll be right back.
0: Hi, I'm Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt. I'm the author of The Food
1: Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
0: Today, we've got Francesc Miralles in the office with us. His new book is Love in Lowercase. Hello, Francesc. So glad you could join us. Nice to be here.
1: So I'm very glad that you're here. Tell us a little bit about your novel, Love in Lowercase, which begins in Barcelona on New Year's Eve. Yes,
2: this novel takes place in, in a very hipster quarter of Barcelona called Gracia that it would be something like Williamsburg, but Mm -hmm. for us. And uh, there is a lonely professor of literature that is very angry with the world. He has no friends. He has only his job in the university. And he's very lonely. And uh, the first day of the year, a cat comes to his door. He gives him uh, a plate of milk. And the the cat hides inside the house before he can expel it. And this is the, the beginning of a story in which he accepts the cat in the beginning, but many things happen from here. The cat uh, seems to belong to a very strange old man living on the top of the building, mm. and then uh, a lot of small changes are going to to come to
0: his life. So tell us about this professor. His name is Samuel. He's a linguistics professor. Yes. And is that the reason for his malaise, this linguist? <laughs> uh,
2: actually, it's a uh, two intellectual person to have uh, a lot of intercourse, of social intercourse with other people. And because of this, he prefers always to be at home reading and correcting dictionaries. That is something that my father did. Mm. Uh, my father was had no studies in university. Uh, he was a self-taught man, but he liked to take dictionaries and correct small entries. <laughs> uh, and that was his life. And Samuel de Juan, our main character, he likes listening to classical music with huge headphones, uh, reading dictionaries and being alone because he, he doesn't rely in human relation. And uh, from the entrance of this, uh, the coming of this cat in his life, it's uh, something that seems not to be important, but it will provoke many other things in a kind of butterfly effect.
1: Fascinating. So, tell us a little bit about this cat. Is there an actual magical aspect to this, or it's not entirely clear? It's
2: The normal magic of cats. Cats are very good psychologists in the way that they know how to manipulate human emotions. Mm. So, a cat finds always his way that you approach to touch him, and uh, uh, it's uh, in an opposite way, like the dog will follow you, the cat will find a way that you go after him.
1: Mm, that makes a lot of sense. So <laughs> what, happen- what happens when he goes after this cat, Mishima? Uh,
2: he doesn't want to have this cat at home, but the the cat uh, has hidden so- uh, somewhere in the flat. He doesn't know. He thinks that the, the cat has gone away. And uh, when he's very sick, because it's winter and he gets some flu, the cat appears in his bed and then they establish some kind of little friendship, and then the cat tends to go to the upper to to the upper side of the building. And this professor thinks that the cat belongs actually to a very strange old man that is always at home uh, in the top of the building. And uh, this man uh, is going to make uh, a special friendship with this Samuel, and it's a man who writes self-help books. Mm-hmm. but w- not with his name, with pseudonyms. And then this professor will have to write a self-help book also. And uh, uh, from here, a lot of small stories start to happen.
1: So it sounds like the the structure of this is a lot of these small stories put mm-hmm. together. Um, how did you arrive at doing that that way, rather than the, well, a more straightforward
2: Yes, structure? there are a lot of small stories, but uh, there is a, a main line, and that's... That uh, in the moment in which this man starts opening himself, uh, a girl with uh, whom she had uh, some relationship when he was a child and he played with her appears in the street. Mm-hmm. So, and he establishes a connection between that he's changing things in his life, so accepting a cat, knowing the neighbor and that uh, this uh, puts in action synchronicities. And so a lot of the, the magic of chance starts working in his life. And the, the main story, I would say, is not the friendship between this man and the cat, but uh, the uh, the reencounter, the, the coming back of a, of a love story mm-hmm. from the childhood.
1: I see. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot going on here.
2: A lot of things. A lot of little things are going on. Yes.
0: So let's talk about the, the title, the, the Love in Lowercase. Yes. Uh, uh, what is the difference between capital, Is I can say, I, I assume it's capital L or lowercase L? Yes.
2: What is uh, curious to know is that in England, the title was Love in, a, in a Small Letters. Mm-hmm. And here in the States, Love in Lowercase, but what it means the same. What does it mean? Uh, normally... The movies of Hollywood and the novels, they speak about great, big big love, big dramatical love that can change your life, that you are mm. uh, ready to die for love. And um, But I wanted to speak of uh, a love that is much tinier, but that can be very important and very uh, transformative in the life of a person. So these small facts of love that you do Mm, listening to a person who is uh, living in the street attending to a telephone call uh, looking in a different direction when you are in the street opening the door like this, and these uh, small moments of uh, d- attention, of love uh, c- due to the butterfly effect can produce many more changes mm-hmm. and in the end it can bring to a big love but uh, you must start uh, changing small things in your life, in in your daily life, that was the idea. Not to explain a very big romantic uh, story, but uh, a very small story of somebody who uh, is very lonely, but with uh, very small changes, produces a revolution in his life. Mm.
1: So um, he he pursues this uh, this woman who he knew mm-hmm. once upon a time, and they and yes. they renew their. Acquaintance.
2: Because he, he has a childish vision of love because he has been lonely d- during 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. He has not had a, a girlfriend. He has not had a, a, a serious relationship. And the idea he has from love was a girl with whom he was playing when he was a child. And that, that girl gave him a butterfly kiss. That is something in Germany, uh, all children play with that with the eye... The eyelashes. Mm -hmm. With the the eyelashes. And his idea of love, his image of love, is nothing real. It's that moment in which this girl uh, expresses her affection to him as a child with this butterfly kiss. And when he starts doing different things, first with the cat, then with the friendship with this old man, this old man wants him to go to a, a shop in the center of Barcelona where they sell uh, small trains, model trains. Mm-hmm. And when he goes to the shop and sees a train that is moving, in that moment, that girl of the Butterfly kiss crosses the street. And so he starts investigating what has happened with this woman. It's al- already a woman. Mm-hmm. And tries to, to establish contact with her, but she doesn't remember anything of that uh, re- uh, relationship that for him was so important, he she does not even uh, recognize him. Hmm. That's it, and that's part of the story. That's the beginning of the story.
0: Now uh, you talked about the what you'd said—the strange old man who who lives mm-hmm. upstairs, who yes. writes self-help books yes. under pseudonyms. Now, if I'm not mistaken, you have also written yes, self-help a lo- a books. A lot of them, and some
2: ah. of them very successful.
0: <laughs> uh,
2: actually, the I started working as a self-help publisher. Before that, I was translator. Then I I worked in a in a uh, in a publishing house of psychology, spirituality books, New mm. Age books, too. Right. Uh, and after my quitting my job, because I didn't like being 12 hours a day in an office, mm. they proposed me to write self, self-help books with pseudonyms. So uh, I didn't sign them, like Frances Miralles, but we put German names, American names <laughs> Japanese names, depending on the topic, if it was a book about Zen, about Tao, maybe an oriental name if uh, it, if it was something of positive thinking and emotional intelligence, maybe they put an anglo saxon name and i did I wrote a, a lot of books uh taking good good sources, and one of these books was a huge success in Brazil and Greece. Uh, I have a pseudonym called alan Percy, and I wrote a book called. Nietzsche for Stressed People. <laughs> 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 and this book uh, was two years between the, the three bestsellers in Brazil and, and Greece, and still is a, a very big success. And I visited the countries. I visited Brazil as Alan Percy. That was something strange for me.
1: Yes. I'm sure. <laughs> wow! <laughs> so uh, you've you've had quite a lot of adventures, yes. Yourself leading up to this. So so how does uh, how does that inform this book? Because it sounds it sounds like you have a a kind of moral center to this book too. That in some ways it's a self help novel.
2: It somehow it's a novel uh, about self help books, but also in a funny way, not in in as um, taking it. As a very serious a spiritual book, it's a, it's a book with uh, humor mm-hmm. uh, to help relative, uh, to, to relativizing things. It's a book about changes, personal changes, and also about German literature because uh, we go with this professor to his classes and we listen to him how he explains Goethe and Werther, mm-hmm. uh, how he explains uh, the the narrative. Keys of Kafka and Hermann Hesse and all this. So it's about a book about many things, but I would say the main topic is loneliness and the possibility of breaking your isolation, changing small things in your life. But I wouldn't say it's a... Maybe it's an inspirational novel, but mm. not a self-help novel.
1: No, that's a good distinction. I think inspirational is a a good word for it. It it feels like it just has that that very encouraging.
2: Encouraging, but it's a book about normal people in everyday life. Mm. Not about miracles of any Mm. kind.
0: (laughs) So... uh, Tell us a little bit about the, 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 the classes. What does this linguistic professor have to say about uh, uh, some of these uh, German uh, philosophers or uh, writers? Uh,
2: yes. Uh, actually, when I wrote this novel, this, uh, the studies of Germanistic, of German philology, existed in Barcelona. Now they don't exist anymore. Now they are mixed with English because mm. in the end they had only eight students every year. Mm. So there were more professors than the students and it was very expensive for the state because it, it was a public university. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the things that he uh, tries to transmit to his uh, students are the keys of narration of each of these great figures. Goethe and the Romanticism, Kafka, and uh, and and this view uh, on the modern world and the contradictions of, of the contemporary men. Uh, Hermann Hesse and the introduction of West, uh, Eastern philosophy uh, in Europe and also speaking about Bertolt Brecht and things like that. So it's, among other things, it's an introduction to the modern German culture for every reader in a funny way mm-hmm. because we are with him in, in the class and we see what the students say uh, the mistakes in the in the in the different n- not the exams the the redactions the the, the, the the essays yes mm-hmm. <laughs> so from this point of view so uh, some second secondary topics is the german literature classical music some classical yeah. authors and also how uh, a self help book is written, which ingredients are there. And also um, other things are the magic of chances. There is a strange character that is obsessed with the moon and that, with the idea that uh, man was never in the moon, that it's something that half of the population believes, that mm. uh, all, all this d- never existed and what happens in the dark side of the moon. So there are a lot of different things happening at the same time.
1: We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away.
0: Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella.
1: Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio
0: every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com
1: Welcome back we're talking with Francesc Miralles who's the author of Love in Lowercase and um, so you mentioned you wear a lot of hats um, you've, you've uh, been a translator you've translated young adult fiction um, tell us a little bit about your translation work
2: uh, Yes, it was when I was finishing my studies in, in German literature and, and English also uh, there were a lot of publishing houses looking for translations from German to Spanish, and uh, by that time, there were there were a lot of uh, spiritual books or new psychology books, and that's the thing that uh, put me in the track of, of this kind of essays. So I started translating maybe fifteen, twenty books about many things uh, about Aboriginal spirituality about different uh, schools of psychology positive thinking mm, different tendencies mm-hmm. and uh, in one of these publishing houses with which uh, I was working they they had a a position t- uh, to be a what we say editor junior mm-hmm. uh, so t- to work with the text to to correct uh, with all this, not the the person who buys the books. So I was one year and a half working with text, knowing the authors. And then uh, afterwards, I directed a collection. And after three years and a half or so, I quitted that. And I started working as a freelance, writing books, uh, writing articles for El País and other publications about psychologists. And also, making uh, every month, I I make interviews to authors that have important books. For instance, this morning I uh, I was uh, making an interview to uh, Don Miguel Ruiz, the the author of the Four Agreements. Mm-hmm. That's my kind of work with journalism, things uh, that have to do with psychology, spirituality, and
0: new conscience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the translator for this book, for, for your novel, Julie Wark, yes. I think, uh, how did that come about? Did the publisher select? I know they usually do select the translator. And what was it like working with a translator?
2: I don't know her. Uh, and she lives in Barcelona, i heard. She's English. Uh, she works with Alma Books, that was the first publisher mm-hmm. uh, who launched this, this book in English. It was in the UK. And Julie Work is a very good translator who lives in Barcelona. And uh, the publisher told me that she was going to do changes in the text. And actually, it's not exactly the same hmm. than in Spanish or in other languages. They, they did it a bit shorter and simplified a bit some of the reflections of this professor so that the, the reading was uh, a bit lighter and actually the the american version of uh penguin books is exactly this this julie work translation
0: so how would it, how would it work she would she uh uh edit it or or translate it and then uh submit it to you to or you know send it to you or to the editor did you have much of uh email exchange or i never talked with her i think Maybe, in the end the the
2: publisher sent me the the Word file with the translation, so i I read it to to know if there was some misunderstanding, and I edited some some small things, but i didn't have a, a real conversation with her right um, She gave uh, a list of doubts to her publisher. And the publisher gave me these doubts to me i I gave them answers, and the book went to the bookshops
0: ah mm-hmm. and what was it like for you reading your book in english? very nice i had
2: this book uh has been published in twenty one languages, mm. but most of these languages I cannot understand. So I had read the German version of love in lowercase Th- they changed totally the the title mm-hmm. in Germany it was called Samuel or the Love for the Small Things. Mm. A very long title. And I, I read that translation, it was very good. And in English I read the translation of Julie Work and it was different from my style but it worked very well. So I felt very satisfied with her work. Mm. Mm-hmm.
1: So this this seems to be your your big book your breakout book at least in, internationally. I mean, obviously, you've but there is no there is well, no reason but. for that because yeah, so I,
2: in Spain <laughs> it has, it, it had no success at all. So the story of this book was that uh, I I wrote it uh, for a major publishing house in Spain. It was okay, but it didn't got reprints in South America. I got a lot of mails of readers and this and then they published in Catalan and in a Frankfurt book fair a German editor appeared with this book in his hands it was a a woman in her hands and she had received the book from uh, a friend in Barcelona and she loved the cats and she loved the story and she wanted to buy this book so it was uh, the uh, the publisher of Ulstein and uh, when it, this book appeared in Germany, it was two years in the bestsellers list, hmm. maybe because it has to do with uh, the mentality and the way of living on in every country. In Spain, we live in the streets uh, most of the year. We, we don't have really winter maybe three, four days with r- that are really cold, and the rest of the year you can sit in at a race having a coffee or a wine uh-huh. or a tapas or something. So uh, there are very, very few people standing at home day after day with a book and mm. with a... Ca- it's not typical of the Spanish culture. Maybe because of that they didn't connect so much with this story. But in Germany, that is a more cultivated country with a, a lot... More of readers, of intellectuals, many many people uh, had empathy with the samuel, hmm. and uh, and the book was reprinted many times and was two years in the in the long lists, and because of this, then other countries came and in Japan, in Korea, in China, and many, p- and it's a book that has had a lot of uh, languages. A, a lot of possibilities, but that in, in Spain is not very well known. Mm.
1: <laughs> so when when did you originally write it?
2: I, I wrote it around 10 years ago, more or less. Wow. <laughs> wow. But, uh, so it's
1: been a long journey.
2: It's a, it's a long journey, and f- since then, every year, two three different languages have
0: translated the book. So hmm. how did how did the acquisition here happen? You you heard it from your editor that yes. the American audience has, uh, that the American publisher so has what, bought it. Was this also at Frankfurt?
2: Yeah, so no. What, what happened is that after the seventeen eighteen languages, an editor of UK, Alma Books was interested in publishing it in English, and uh, it it was quite okay in in the okay. UK. Uh, it uh, they sold the first edition very well, and they had distribution in other Anglo-Saxon countries through other publishers. So uh, they had small distribution in Australia and Canada. And in in the States, Penguin was uh, uh, the house that was in charge to distribute the books of Alma Books. And when the uh, publisher of Penguin, John Siciliano, read the book, said, "Okay, this book, we think that can have uh, very good feedback in the United States... We put now the, the British edition, but we want to do our own edition with our cover in our collection. So they decided not only to distribute the book, but one year after to launch the the novel in Penguin Books. And the, it happened last week. Hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was a surprise <laughs> for me, too. Wow, <laughs> wonderful.
1: And so now you're in the U.S. What else are you going to be doing while you're here?
2: Tomorrow... I am going to Georgetown because the university has invited me to give a a talk to the students of uh, Spanish literature that I think they have a very nice department there. Mm -hmm. So I suppose we'll talk about Spanish authors, about Catalan authors, about the publishing industry in Spain, about all these kind of things. So I will give a, a public lesson with the students.
0: So let's talk about the uh, you had just mentioned about uh, uh, the low readership in Spain mm-hmm. uh, I know I've been to Italy recently my family's from Italy and the same thing is in 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 Italian publishing. Uh the numbers aren't aren't uh mm-hmm. climbing. They're stagnant if if dropping. And you're saying you you attribute this to in in Spain the the culture the 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 night culture the um the, the kind of social culture of Spain. Yeah, we we have a very intense
2: social culture. So normally in Spain People tend to be together with friends, with families, uh, uh, and they are interested in good food, in football. That is uh, (laughs) an an obsession (laughs) there. And being outside, having a a drink and talking and all this. There there are not many lonely people. Uh, We we are very social, and and we are always together with other people. Maybe mm, some... Uh, I- the intellectuals are people with liberal professions uh, like designers, uh, architects, translators, mm-hmm. uh, artists, but it's a minority. Mm. So uh, most of people, maybe they read one book a year. And, I- and it happens in Catalonia, it happens always for St. George Day. So oh, tw- I was
1: going to say you have a whole holiday about books.
2: The, the 23rd of April. It's the day of the book and the day of Saint George, and uh, it has to do with the date of uh, the, the death of Cervantes and Shakespeare, I think so. Mm-hmm. So the 23rd of April, uh, the, the bookstores put uh, stands in the streets, and uh, that day, four million books are, are sold only in Catalonia, and we are seven million people. because the tradition is that men Mm. will give a rose to the woman, even if you are the boss and you have five women working in the office, you you will give a rose to everyone, and the woman will give to men um, a book. So that day, all men get two, three, four books from the girlfriend, from the mother, from here, and a lot of roses are there. So in, in this community in Catalonia, most of the books are sold in one single day, that was the third oh. April. So the, the publishing houses are <laughs> fighting to, to get their books there. And many people only read a book after Saint Jordi, after Saint George, yeah. and the rest of the year they read the sports newspaper, <laughs> or, or the posts in Facebook. Right, you know? right, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs>
1: uh, so you uh, just to sh- shift away briefly from books. Um, you also, for a while, have played music. Yes. Uh, how how does music sort of intersect with the the writing and reading for you? Uh,
2: actually, um, the different bands uh, I have had were um, uh, made with. People of the publishing world uh-huh. who were tired of being always reading and correcting and translating and once in the week, normally on Monday, we met together to play some music uh, sometimes to to play covers uh, and also with our own songs and it was something uh, always. Nothing to do with money, so we play in bars, we play in small theaters, we play in some festivals, mm-hmm. but we we have never been in the music industry so <laughs> but it's a good compliment it's something very different it's uh, so something very actually before writing my first book, I wanted to compose soundtracks I, and I was um, playing a lot the piano. And it was when I became 29, 30 that was interested in writing. Before, music was all my world. So and I was a reader, but I didn't think... I, I never thought that I would write a whole book myself. It it came very surprisingly.
1: So, um, do they ever combine for you, other than playing music with other people in, in publishing? Do you hear music yes. while you write?
2: Uh, yes, there is a relation, because the literary presentations when i have to to make a presentation of a book in spain sometimes i come with my band so mm-hmm. uh there is a part of speaking but then a, a little concert or there is a reading with live music so i try to combine the things and then when we when we prepare book trailers nowadays the writers make their own book trailers mm-hmm. so because uh at least in Spain, the publishing houses don't have the money to to go to a publicist or somebody to make this. So the the writers, maybe they are in contact with somebody who is starting in, in the cinema and shoots one minute, ten seconds. That is the normal size for a book trailer. And then I have composed music for at least 15 different writers for their books, to, to announce their books.
1: That's so great. So, <laughs> so that, that way you can have sort of the best of both worlds.
2: Yes. <laughs> it's funny. And it's very relaxing too.
1: We've been talking with Francesc Miralles and you can find his book, Love in Lowercase, in stores right now. Thank you so much for coming joining us, especially from all the way overseas.
0: Thank thank you very much for the interview. I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Next up, PW Senior News Editor Calvin Reed talks about an international controversy in comics, so stay tuned.
3: I'm Tim Dorsey, author of Coconut Cowboy, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, fan-favorite PW Senior News editor Calvin Reed is here to tell us all about the International Comics Festival in Angoulême. Hello, Calvin.
3: Uh, hello, and um, always glad to be on uh, PW Radio. <laughs> we're always glad yes. to have
1: you here, um, visiting us from from your uh, from your other podcasts. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about uh, why you ended up going to France for a comics festival, and what happened when
3: you were there. Uh, well, uh, I have just returned, and really, literal, almost literally. I mean, it was this past weekend mm-hmm. uh, from the Angoulême Festival International de la Bande Dessinée. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the festival at angolim it, it's one of the sort of three or four major events in the comics nerd world i mean san diego being one uh, i'd have to add new york comic con to that sure. now angolim and comiket in, uh, in in tokyo probably the uh, the mother of them all you know mm. which happens twice a year hundreds of thousands of people each one um had never been before uh, and angolim is a very simply, uh, though there are other European comics conventions, this is probably the most prestigious comics festival um, in, in in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes place in Angoulême, a medieval era city uh, in the southwest portion of France. Uh, it is not like American comics conventions. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. But this is, uh, I, I, I don't know how much our listeners may know about the role of comics in French culture. But I know, uh, you know, here in America, we consider ourselves the beginners, the originator of comics. But uh, there's no people, maybe the Japanese, that love comics more than the French people. It is pervasive throughout French culture. Um, Comics publishing is not delegated to, uh, you know, its own little, you know, retail uh, outlet off to the side. It's pervasive in bookstores. Indeed, comics publishing is a book publishing Mm -hmm phenomenon. There is very little of the American style um, superhero periodical Uh comic books, our traditional comic books. There is some, and I'm told actually that um, that it's actually a little more lively than it has been in years past, but it is an overwhelmingly a book format industry. Uh, And when you arrive in Angoulême, you realize you're in you're uh, in we're in another place we're not in Kansas anymore for sure <laughs> why is that uh, tell us <laughs> well because the entire city the festival takes place in the entire city of Angola. now it's not the biggest city in the world but uh and it is in it, it is a it dates from the middle ages so i mean the the city center is this sort of amazing warren of 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 uh of of um, uh, pathways and streets some of which actually actually don't accept cars uh narrow and you know i'm not a big world traveler and i've been to europe a couple times I've never been to france before but uh it's an incredibly charming town very beautiful like i guess most medieval towns it's up on a hill i guess you know keep away from the catapults and uh, the sieges <laughs> right um and you can turn or you can walk around a corner anywhere and there are just sort of breathtaking views because the city is up on this this hill uh but literally, well, almost literally, every presentation venue, every museum is given over to some comics-related event. There are roughly, and I'm probably misstating the number, roughly 12 pavilions arrayed throughout the city. Some of them are giant tents. Some of them are buildings that have just simply been taken over. Um, devoted to one theme or another, um, there's like Little Asia, there's... a uh, uh, what was the oh? There's a Le Nouveau Monde, which is all of the independents and experimental uh, comics publishers. Uh, a vast hall that you can just go through. Oh, and w- booth after booth, beautifully produced, uh, independently produced graphic novels, and it's a comics industry that's really focused on comics as a true publishing industry. I mean, comics in the U.S. here are just starting to get to that point. You know, mm-hmm. we uh, American comics for for many decades, certainly since the late 1950s, has been a bit of a one genre business—superhero comics. Uh, one of the things that we've been fortunate with here at PW and that PW has had uh, a hand in is expanding the American comics marketplace. Um, dr- you know, bringing the comics industry into the book market, which is, is traditionally American comics are a periodical industry. And also educating the American book publishing industry that comics, indeed, are books as well. Right. And over the last 10 years, it's been, we've seen a flowering here that's perfectly normal in France. You go into major bookstores, uh, comics are everywhere. They're, and they're, they're just incredible. When you get to Angoulême, Comics are everywhere. Massive pavilions. Uh, There were more than about 20 exhibitions uh, spread at various museums throughout the city. Uh, I was lucky enough to go to the Musée uh, du laban des It's The Comics Museum. It is the Comics Museum. (laughs) Um, uh, And they had an exhibition there of... um, uh, a comic called um, Lucky Luke. Um, what you find in European comics, the Italians are this way, too. There's an incredible fascination with the old American West uh, and the mythologies around them, most of which have been sort of debunked here. Uh, the role of Native Americans, the role of, you know, um, you know, Manifest Destiny, all of that stuff. We don't look on it quite so as a, such a happy-go-lucky, you know, triumph of... Um, You know, the American will, uh, as perhaps me growing up in the nineteen sixties. You know, the westerns were huge. So we, we, you know, we're a little more skeptical of that. Sure. But these comics, something like Lucky Lou, is a western comic, and it's a huge influence in French culture, French popular culture. Mm. There was a massive exhibition at the Musée BD uh, in Angoulême. I mean, I can go on and on. Uh, Signings. uh, There were a number of American artists there, also uh, Jessica Abel who actually has a book out now from Broadway Books mm-hmm. uh, about podcasting and radio and, and the legacy of um, This American Life. She has a book in France called Trish Trash, Roller Girl from Mars. It's a YA graphic novel, really about a, a kind of a roller girling, a roller <laughs> girl uh, on Mars and her adventures. And actually the book is going to be published in the U.S. in the fall by MBM.
1: So, so how does yes. this work? Are these are these books translated? Or, um, I don't uh, hear I mean, it's in a lot, French. but I don't hear a lot about translations in one direction or another from comics.
3: Well, this, that's there's definitely that. I mean, one of the things that's going on now. I, mean, I, I should say uh, one other comparison. Angolin is to compare it to Frankfurt. It's uh, as if Frankfurt were all comics. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. That's how vast it is, and also like Frankfurt, it is a big rights market uh, for European and international publishers. To buy and sell rights to um, uh, comics, to translate and republish in their own countries, uh, it has not had a big American presence. And part of what we were doing over there was working and covering an initiative to raise the profile of French graphic novels in the U.S., which has been a kind of a, a sporadic and occasional effort by French publishers over the years. But there seems to be they they seem to be doing it now with renewed uh, interest and vigor. And there is a, an initiative launched, EuropeComics.com, which mm-hmm. is a coalition of 13 European publishers who are marketing their books to American publishers um, uh, through the website, offering um, both retailer links to people if you'd like to go and buy, but really offering easy-to-find information for the American publishers looking to buy rights. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that went on in um, Angle Lim. I I should also mention, just um, for gossip's sake, I mean, this year's uh, Angoulême uh, was wracked by controversy um, and uh, startlingly inappropriate statements by the people that that organize it. Now, the fair rises above this because the comics are so majestic, and they're just an amazing work. But really, this thing started out in early January. Um, The uh, Angoulême has a Lifetime Achievement Award, the Grand Prix. Um, and it's uh, awarded to an artist of, for you know lifetime effort and an achievement over a career. When they issued the nominating list early in January this year, uh, there were 30 names, there were no women. Um, and uh, f- French women cartoonists weren't having it. Uh, and including the men on the list, too, uh, starting with um, Riyad Sertouf, whose book was one of our... P.W. Best Books of the Year in English Translation, mm-hmm. Arab of the Future, uh, he immediately said, uh, count me out. I, I don't want any part of this. And following that, the, uh, of the 30 names on the list, about half of them, including a m- number of Americans, uh, the Chris Ware, Dan Klaus, said, look, this is, two th- this is 2016. Um, this the notion that there are no women that you could find to put on this list is, come on, get real.
1: Especially if you're looking internationally. Because if, if it's, I mean, I'm, I have no doubt that there are women doing wonderful work in French comics. But once you broaden the scope to, to the rest of the world, Absolutely. there's simply no excuse.
3: Well, very good point that you make. Because actually, the show has been trying to expand its reach. It is a bit of a French Festival Sure uh, because of the uh, simply because of the pervasiveness and the respect for the, for the medium, however, in recent years, they have been reaching out um, some of the Grand Prix winners in the past have been uh, B- uh, Bill Waterson here from the states, uh, Katsuhiro Otomo, the great manga artist manga actually been having a really explosive popularity in france um, uh, and others uh, a woman only one woman has ever won the Grand Prix, uh, Florence Sestac, and it was quite a few years ago. So, um, but this issue was complicated yet again by uh, the the director of the, one of the organizers of the festival. It's run by a holding company whose name I can't pronounce, Uh, but the guy's name is Frank Bondu. And uh, when people just basically, uh, you know, complained and challenged him on this list, uh, his response was that it, well everyone knows uh, there aren't there are very few women in French French uh, history that it would you know would, uh, very very few uh, female comics artists in French history that would be worthy of this and he says and it's not just us he said go to the Louvre there's no women there either <laughs> <laughs> I'm not oh. joking. So, <laughs> oh, wow. So
1: yes, that, other people are also sexist.
3: Yes, well, but but <laughs> well, sexist to well the degree. Done. It's hard to even breathtakingly. Yeah. Okay. Well, nobody was buying that. Right. And basically, at that point, the whole um, the organizers backed down and they threw the nominations open to everyone. Um, but at this point, it became a very politicized event. Uh, eventually. Um, uh, Herman, uh Hoppen, uh, he's known generally uh, as, as Hermann. I mean, and there's a number of... Uh, the more famous you get in France, the more you become a one-named person, right. apparently. So Hermann actually was awarded a prize and accepted, although all three of the people, that, that included one woman, uh, Claire Windley, were dubious uh, about... Well, basically, they turned it down excuse me, Erman was convinced that he should accept it. There's a lot of work involved and a lot of times car- cartoonists don't want to spend the time. You get a big, uh, you, you you reign over the festival the the next year and there's a big exhibition of your work, but you know, you've got to take time out, deal sure. with it. A lot of cartoonists, particularly after they reach a certain age, are not that crazy about having the demands put on them. That said, he accepted it, uh, but it didn't end there. The closing night of the show they give out a series of awards called the Fauves, and they're basically books, the best books of the show. Uh, For some reason, it's a long ceremony. Apparently, they decided to hire a French comedian uh, to make it a bit more entertaining, Uh, but they also put it under this weird sort of rubric. The comedian came out, and for the first eight minutes, he announced winners, but the problem was they were fake winners, but they were still the People who had been nominated. Oh, that, this was so considered awful. by the organizers to be terribly funny and a joke. But co- of course, but, as any but
1: heartbreaking re- for the oh. people exactly God. for the people who thought they'd Can won. Can you
3: possibly imagine? Oh, that sounds not horrible. to mention that the apparently the uh, the farcical uh, joke ceremony included um, at least two scantily clad women. Uh, some. So, I mean, uh, to add insult to injury, uh, our old friend Frank Bondu comes back again and his only response to this. Now, my, bear in mind, the publishers have been um, texting their American authors who may not be there, letting them know, you won, you've won. Uh, oh. The French authors who are there are clapping each other on the back, you know, and buying new rounds of drinks. Everyone's celebrating until, of course, they hear that it's all this big, terribly unfunny joke. Um, wow. Bondu's response to it is that everyone needs to get a better sense of humor. The, you know, These are comics we're talking about here anyway, right? Isn't humor the whole point? Now, I'm paraphrasing, but I think if you go online and you find the various uh, responses to this, uh, I'm, I'm not far exaggerating anything. So, we're going to move away from that. Uh, you know, That's why he's saying um, gabs and great graphic novels <laughs> characterize this year's Angolim. Limb. But um, for someone like me, who grew up hearing that this festival, hearing about this festival, uh, its legendary status, uh, the the incredible um, uh, example it presented to uh, you know a young uh, editor here in the states about what what this medium can actually do in terms of being a, a, an art form, you know, Lim, uh, it was it was wonderful and really a dream come true to get a chance to go there, walk the streets, talk with mm. artists, and. Uh, um, and just see the spectacle that is Angoulême.
1: So how easy was it to navigate the festival as someone who hasn't, you so say you haven't been to France before? Do you speak French? I don't
3: speak any French, even though I took it for eight years in public school, <laughs> you know. Uh, typical American. Uh, I will say this. I do have to uh, give a shout out to Ivanka Hannenberger. She is, you um, know, uh, she's a, a special person. She's a rights uh, person that works the, the rights market uh, at Angoulin. Uh She works for a company called VIP Brands, and she represents some of the biggest public in France and some of the smaller ones um, like I said there is initiative on to raise the profile of French graphic novels in the US and, and Ivanka works as a consultant and a, and a bit of a visionary she's an American raised in a Geneva multilingual uh, she's perfectly American and perfectly European. You don't <laughs> see that very often. That's very impressive. Um, <clears throat> uh, she speaks perfect, uh, perfect French, uh, speaks perfectly American English, and German as well. So she, um, she has really been working to get uh, both American publishers and American journalists there. Uh, and she acts as a sort of guiding hand. So she certainly smoothed the away in many cases. Um, I trotted out my high school French uh, uh, at just the right times. In Angoulême, I found very many French people. uh, I should say the stereotype that I had heard about the the rude French national when you can't speak the language. Actually, I didn't encounter that at all. People were very forgiving. Uh, And usually after they heard my tortured uh, attempt to speak French.
1: (laughs) Bonjour. They were
3: more than willing to speak a little English uh, and help us along. Uh, So, so, you know, I mean, Angoulême, uh, though it is an international festival, is... You know, it's geared to the French, um, but, you know, you can make your way around. You know, it's not that hard. And really, you can walk the entire festival. I mean, you can walk a, a, one end of the city to the other in a half an hour. Wow. So, well, yeah.
1: ne- next year, take me with you.
3: I'd be happy to. Oh, <laughs> I want to go, too. I'm trying too. to figure out how to go next year.
1: <laughs> it sounds like a wonderful time, uh, yeah. even even with the issues this year hopefully next year it'll be a little let's smoother. hope so. yes well thank you so much calvin it's always great to have you here a pleasure and now a final word from our sponsors
3: hi i'm tom hart the creator of the book rosalie lightning and you're listening to publishers weekly
2: radio
1: And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox.
3: And I'm
0: Mark Rotella. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Join us next week for another fascinating author interview. And we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing.
0: In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash PWRadio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net.